Coming up on Security Now, I'm getting to fill in for Leo for another week, and Steve Gibson and I have got some great stuff to talk about, including Microsoft's Do Not Track. They have it on by default. Why is that? We'll get into that, plus a look at the interesting story of John McAfee and a Skype vulnerability. All that and more coming up. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 378, recorded November 14th, 2012. Microsoft, Secrecy, Privacy, and DNT. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring available sync. Now you can control your media player with simple voice commands. Enjoy your drive while you easily search and listen to your favorite songs. Check it out on the 2012 Ford Focus and at Ford.com slash technology. And by Audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that helps you learn about all the dangers online and take some action and maybe keep yourself a, a little safer, at least as safe as you, you can try to be. I'm Tom Merritt, filling in for Leo Laporte for a couple of weeks while he's off on a cruise, which is fun for me because I get to talk to this man right here, the brains behind GRC.com, Mr. Steve Gibson. How's it going, Steve? Hey, Tom, it's great to be with you again for the second week in a row. And we got one more uh, next Wednesday, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And so. we got some good stuff to talk about today. Uh, we're we're going to get deep into Microsoft and do not track. Yeah, what happened is um, a, a, a couple things came together for me. Um, they released and I tweeted yesterday on on my Twitter feed the link to their preview of ie 10 for windows 7 so we had heard that they were going to make ie 10 available for windows 7 it's now in preview uh i wanted to experience this you know what does the user see when they install ie 10 because we've heard that there's like you know some opportunity to turn off the default on dnt header so that was one aspect, and we'll talk about that and where the setting is and how well buried it is. It's a sort of a compromise between Chrome, where you just cannot find it, and Firefox, where it's really where it should be. My, you know, hats off to Firefox. But then the other thing that happened was in digging in, I found a, a couple weeks old transcript of a relatively short, it's you know probably about 10 minutes, uh, keynote, which was given at the recent 34th International Conference of Data Protection and Privacy Commissioners um, by Microsoft's general counsel and exec VP, who's in charge of all this, Brad Smith. So, and what I loved about it is it, it gives us a rare insight into what Microsoft is really thinking. That is, why they've done this, what they think about it, and and why. So I want to I want to share that with our listeners and 
and discuss it. And then also some of the other things which have come up, like the fact that Apache's decision uh, to strip this from uh, client queries was anything but smooth. It was very con- uh, controversial. And, uh, and, of course, we have all of our news of the week. So all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Some interesting news. We've got a Skype vulnerability to talk about that's kind of yep. come and gone this morning or how, how gone it is. We'll talk about that. <laughs> and also the strange adventures of Mr. McAfee uh, to talk uh. about as well. Uh, but first, let's uh, thank our one of our sponsors for today's show, Ford, uh, without which we couldn't do these shows on Twit. Uh, Ford features Sync. If you don't know about Sync, uh, it's it's a whole in-dash technology platform, uh, and it's got all kinds of versatile entertainment features. You probably know about the fact that you can tell it to do something, like send a text message, that sort of thing. Did you know you can browse your music collection? And not just by genre, but by album, by artist, by playlist. You can even uh, say, I-, I want similar music to what's playing right now, and it'll just say, oh, that's that's a jazz song. Let's Let's pull up some more jazz, all by voice command, so you can drive with your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road. You can voice control your music no matter how it's stored on your smartphone, your USB drive, your MP3 player. uses Bluetooth for, for most smartphones, and it does iTunes tagging. Uh, so if you hear a song and you're like, I want to buy that, but and, and, and what do I do? I'm driving right now. This, this crazy person in front of me is weaving all over the road. i got to pay attention. You just tell it to iTunes tag it, and then when you're safely off the road, uh, it's saved the information. You can buy it from the iTunes store at a later time. Best of all, Ford offers sync on Every 2012 and 2013 Ford vehicle sold in the United States of America, including the 2012 Ford Focus. You can learn more about this and other technologies Ford is bringing to its vehicles. they got a lot going on over there. They love the tech. Ford.com slash technology. And we thank them for their support of Security Now. So let's start off with Patch Tuesday stuff. Uh, what's, what's, what should we know about this Patch Tuesday, Steve? Well, um, it's, your, <laughs> it's your generic second Tuesday of the month. We do seem, I, I don't remember now, somebody observed that we seem to see an alternating pattern, and it's holding up now many months. This is another month where we're seeing an alternating pattern of large and small patch Tuesdays, this month being a big one. So I guess it's the odd months that have the large patch Tuesdays, and so far, for like the last running six or seven months, the even months have not had very much going on. So this is one of the big ones. Um, uh, everything requires that you reboot. So, you know, sometimes you can get some things like, you know, dot, the dot .4 or .NET version 4 stuff can update without requiring a reboot in some cases. No chance this yeah. time. So I, yeah, you know. no, those, those are rare, pleasant <laughs> moments when that happens, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so four of their updates are rated critical. Uh, and in this case, that means they all provide for the attacker who exploits these vulnerabilities the ability to remotely execute code in your machine. So uh, one of the updates fixes three reported privately reported vulnerabilities in IE, which, you know, and being an IE, it's your standard visit a page and get pwned. Um, uh, the, another update repairs two privately reported vulnerabilities in Windows Explorer. And this is kind of weird. This one is if Windows Explorer browses 
a specially malformed brief windows briefcase. I'd almost style. forgotten about briefcase. Do people, <laughs> do people still use that? It's, you know, Microsoft is slow or, you know, I would say never, except they don't support 16-bit code anymore to my annoyance in Windows 7. But they're, they're you know, they're slow to ever stop doing anything they used to do. And since they used to have briefcases, they still have briefcases. And, 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 and here's a perfect example of old code, which is biting us on the butt, because, as you said, who does that anymore? Mm-hmm. Yet it's there because they want to be backward compatible. And, and in fact, all of these updates affect every supported version of Microsoft operating system and even those that are no longer supported but we don't care about those because that's what no longer supported yeah, means right. so so two so so the second of these critical ones was a if, if you if someone sent you a malformed briefcase and you browsed it in windows explorer not internet explorer the the standard windows explorer you know the, yeah, the, the windows drive browser right. yeah um that could take over your machine then there were five privately supported or five privately reported vulnerabilities in the .NET framework. And the most severe of those um, is, is another one of these weird things. If your user, if your system encounters a malicious proxy auto config file, then someone, some clever person found a way of taking over your computer by planting a malicious proxy auto config file, so that it's able to then inject code into the currently running application and take over your machine. So that's not good. No, not at all. <laughs> and then, although you know, kind of obscure. Yeah. Uh, but the, and then the finally the last of the four critical updates fixes three privately reported vulnerabilities in the kernel's handling of true type files. And this is another one of these where it's like, okay, you know, the kernel, no OS kernel should be involved in rendering fonts. Yeah. But that was a decision Microsoft made back when we didn't have enough performance to move the, the, the GDI, the graphics device interface, down into the kernel so, so for the sake of performance so that you didn't have as many user space to kernel space transitions of of code crossings, each which requires some some substantial overhead. So they decided to do that, and now they're they're paying the price of of you know very high level of complexity, which is what true tri- type rendering involves, where little mistakes get found and can be leveraged. And if it were in user space, it would you know be it, like your app would crash. Yeah, in kernel. You get to have your OS taken over, so they <laughs> just because you weren't using Arial, exactly. Because so, anyways, so so they fixed four of those big four things. Then there was a um, what they call an important update, even though that is to say, not critical, just important in this in this you know criticality rating system that they have now. Um, even though it's a remote code execution, for whatever reason. It didn't rate critical. Um, however, it seems bad to me because there's four privately reported vulnerabilities which this important update fixes in Excel mm. um, where 
your your standard opening a specially crafted Excel file, the attacker is able to obtain the same rights as a currently logged in user. Maybe that's why, because you don't get system privileges, you just get current user privileges. So that would not, make sense. Yeah, don't have that much power. Um, so it's like, yeah, you can re- execute code, but you know, so it pops up Notepad. Okay, who cares? <laughs> uh, and so, and finally, the least significant one was just an, a so-called information disclosure vulnerability, which they they rated as moderate. Um, however, one of these was one of them was public, and one was reported privately. And this is interestingly enough in Microsoft's web server IIS. Um, the more severe of the two, and it wasn't clear to me whether that was the publicly reported one or the privately reported one, but it could allow what, what Microsoft calls information disclosure, and that's not disclosed uh, any further, uh, if an attacker sends a specially crafted or series of specially crafted FTP commands to the server. So you first of all have to be running the file transfer protocol, FTP, of IIS, not just, you know, web, HTTP and HTTPS, um, you have to have it as an FTP server. And apparently someone figured out how there's a way you can ask it some things through FTP and gain information, which you're not supposed to be able to gain. So, Mm. you know, that's our Patch Tuesday. Basically just, you know, do it, find a good time to do it. Uh, Probably sooner would be better than not. This all came out yesterday. When I turned on my Win 7 box, which I'm using here, where I have, for example, IE10 now installed, um, I was told that there were seven things that needed updating. So that was, you know, those things, the the, the intersection of those updates and my particular system characteristics. Various people will have different numbers that need to be updated. But Right, if you don't have Excel, they're not going to patch Excel. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay, so I'm really interested in this Skype password reset uh, issue. Uh, the next web is where I saw it this morning. They said they had alerted Skype about it a few hours before they posted it. But essentially, it was dead simple. All you needed to know was an email address. Well, okay, this is, first of all, what's troubling is that it had been posted two months ago in a Russian online forum. So for two months some subset of Russians, uh, Russian speakers, knew about this. And it nev- that information didn't get to Microsoft that, of course, as we know, famously purchased Skype a couple years ago. Um, and th- this is a classic mistake. This is not buffer overrun. This is the, the sort of mistake. And by the way, I agreed with your, your CNET reporter who you had on. Um, just before this podcast in, you know, in he was sort of musing about, you know, asking the question, how much other stuff like this exists? But I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, um, yeah it makes you wonder for sure. How's it the, work? The, 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 the hack was was um, was not a coding error. It was a design error. It almost makes which, you want to hesitate to call it a hack. Because it's because it's a design issue that people have just figured out how to take advantage of, right? Um, so, if you know, okay, I should say knew. If you knew, I'm using the past tense because this is this no longer works. Microsoft shut down the vulnerability, the, the aspect of vulnerability, which was password recovery. They took that part offline immediately. Then looked at the problem, understood it, fixed it. 
and then brought password recovery back. So, so, and then that's what I mean by this being a design problem. Once, as soon as someone's told them, they're like, oh my God. And so it was, you know, easy to fix. So here, here's what it was. You, all you had to know was somebody. And, and so my point is nobody is at risk now. So this is information. Ol. <laughs> Right. This is not anything anyone needs to run around and change anything or do anything. And Microsoft's logs do notif- did notify them of where this may have ha- happened. And so Microsoft is proactively notifying Skype users who may have had this happen to them. So if you don't get email from Microsoft, then you're okay. And probably, apparently, most people are okay. I mean, this somehow this existed for a couple of months and didn't cause a huge problem. Um, so, knowing some Skype user's email address, and so here we have the instance again of, unfortunately, an email address being less easy to just make up at random than a username and password. Those are, you know, those we can make up at random and we, you know, any savvy internet user knows you, you don't want to reuse passwords. But email addresses, there, you know, there are some services that, l- that let you create them. And we've talked about, for example, in Google Mail, you can put dots in them and the, and the dots aren't lexically important for the parsing of the, of the name in front of the at sign. So you can kind of come up with different hacks for for inventing email addresses for yourself. But typically, people who register for Skype will use their main email address. The email and address is not supposed to be something you need to defend against. Precisely. So it turns out that Microsoft was allowing somebody to create a new account with an existing email address. First mistake right there, right? Yes. When you, and it would, it would notify you. So, so you're, you create a brand new Skype account with an email address of your target victim. And Microsoft says, oh, uh, this email address is already in use. So they knew. By somebody else. Uh, are you sure you want to proceed? And so the hacker says, absolutely. Yeah, of course says, I do. Yes, yes, please. And so it creates your account. Then you log in to the Skype client with your new account that you just created with this other person's email address. And and then you say, oh, uh, I need to reset my password and I can't, don't remember what it is. So the password reset um, response, because it's more than email, there is an email sent to that user's email address. So unless you've hacked into the email address at this point, you shouldn't get the reset token, right? Um, well, no, because so, what happens uh-huh. is it also, being helpful, it also sends a reset link and reset token to the client to your log, your currently logged in Skype client. Now, I guess the thinking there is, if you're already logged in and authenticated, it's guessing that you are the actual user. But because of this earlier problem where they said, hey, we see it's the same address, so uh, but we'll, we'll let you make an account anyway, that does, yes. that's not secure anymore. Yes, exactly. So so what happens is you, you, then re- you then get a link to reset your email address, click the link, provide, you, you're, you're forgiven for not knowing the old, 
password. You provide the new password and you have now taken over that user's Skype account and locked them out since they no longer know the new password you've just set. <laughs> uh, Oopsie. Yeah, so, I mean, at, at least it was easy to fix, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it was, I mean, it's, this is a, a, this is a mistake in, you know, trying to be helpful and friendly. And this problem, this problem probably has always existed. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember ever having done this. I've never forgotten my, my Skype password, so I haven't done a Skype password reset. But I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years ago this functionality was there and this thing, same thing probably happened. Yeah. This, this is one of those problems, and, and this is the point that your, C, your, your CNET reporter uh, guest made in, in the prior podcast was, you know, these sorts of things are around. I mean – we, you might argue, for example, that some of the way Matt Honan got hacked was this sort of this sort of exploit where it's a series of decisions which, when put together in a particular way, allow the hacker to obtain rights that they weren't not meant to have. Uh, it's a, well, exactly. It, it's 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 found. It's fixed. Everything's OK now. But it, it does raise that little niggling worry that there may be other things like that you know if well it, if and it's a perfect i mean for for this podcast it's a perfect uh case in point we talk about these sorts of things all the time here was a here's a you know a clever hack around some features that you know that, that yeah. took advantage of that now this next story uh, has, has gives me the heebie-jeebies <laughs> uh scanning a cab file with semantic antivirus actually leads to a system compromise yeah, this is the danger, of course. It's not as if the AV software is immune from coding errors. I mean, why would we think it would be? It's, Writing it's software. Code. Why couldn't yeah, it have a coding right, error? Yep. Writing software that is flawless is really, really, really hard and really, really, really expensive. So almost no one does. Everyone would like to. It's not cost effective, frankly. So it doesn't happen. So here was a case where, where a, a hacker discovered that an earlier version, which apparently is still widely supply, uh, deployed, this is the Symantec Endpoint Protection 11, is using an older scan engine um, than their current release, which is 12.1. They are not going to fix 11, so there is action required on the part of any individual or corporation who may still be using the, uh, the version 11 of the Symantec endpoint protection system because a deliberately malformed CAB file, which is sort of Microsoft's format for zip files, it's a, it's a large it's a large buffer large you know high compression uh packing of of executables and and other files that's you know it's the you know sh cab is short for cabinet yeah. it's sort of like their equivalent of a zip file their own their own format um and so naturally av needs to look into this compressed archive in order to see if there's bad stuff in there well the some small detail of the way they're doing that it was exploitable. 
um, in this version 11 of the semantic endpoint protection, such that when when the antivirus scanned a virus, it got owned. So it's like opening the can of peanuts, and then it just comes <laughs> exactly. right out at you. And, and so you and, and the and the gotcha here is that is that the attack would ha- would be specific for this for this particular problem, meaning that if you weren't scanning the cab or if you didn't have semantic antivirus, this endpoint protection version 11, this, th- this bad thing couldn't hurt you. It's only if you were looking for it would it then say, aha, I got you, and, yeah. and, and take over your system. So a little, a little, uh, <laughs> a little reverse on that one. So, so what, do they, what do you do to fix it? Um, you just need to update to 12.1. Okay. Um, That's easy. So, so anyone using 11, uh, and it wasn't clear about 12. Um, there was some, let me see. Uh, um, what I, what I, oh, uh, Symantec also reports that Symantec endpoint protection 12.0 is affected. So that was that was later on in the news. So okay. 11 and 12 are a problem. You need 12.1. Got in it. order to be safe. All the way up to 12.1. Yeah, and there is a, a U.S. cert uh, note about this uh, for anyone who wants to pursue that further. I'm sure Symantec has some stuff, too. Now, a bunch of our listeners have been asking me about a cloud-based Amazon and actually Amazon is just one of many cloud providers that a Windows-based archiving tool known as CloudBerry supports. The reason this has come up is that I've talked about several times now ARC, A-R-Q, which is Mac-specific, only runs on the Mac. And um, the author of ARC has on his homepage that if you're a Windows user, you might want to go look at CloudBerry. So a bunch of people have tweeted and I've seen email people saying, hey, Steve, can you tell us, did they do it right? It's a, it apparently supports encryption. Is it secure? Um, what The other event is that it supports the, uh, the newer Amazon S3 um, super inexpensive long-term archiving system. Um, you remember we talked about it. We talked about it actually with regards to ARC because ARC added support, and that's only a penny per gigabyte per month. Right. So it's super nice if you're if you want to stuff things away in the cloud that you do not need real time access to. You you the way you do it is you submit a request to to the Amazon S3 system, and they say between three and five hours later they then make it available for you to download. So that's great for 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 like long-term archiving anyway yeah, stuff that's not time sensitive it's perfect um, they had reached out to me back in may that is the cloudberry folks had and then again last month and i had just it was one of those things where i've, I've got so much going on i and intended to get back to them but the, the recent pressure from Twitter followers saying, hey, Steve, what about Cloudberry? I finally replied, apologize for not getting back to them sooner. And I said, okay, so I need to know what's going on with your crypto. How have you done it? 
because you know i mean it's all very pretty looking user interface sure. and it's it's got the check boxes with all the bells and whistles but all they say anywhere is you know we do encryption uh okay yeah is it so ADS? Does, um, what yeah. are you hashing yeah. or is this alt and oh, you know oh my god yeah. i mean one one it very much like everything else there's one way to do it right and every other way is wrong in some way yeah. so it's you know it's just not easy. So, just late last night, I had the, I had this dialogue. Um, I guess at the beginning of the week. So they were pretty quick in responding. Um, late last night, I got um, a note from my contact there, and also the name and address of their crypto guy. And so it's a good sign that they even have a crypto guy. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, like, who? here's our crypto guy. That would be very worrying if you're like, what's your encryption like? Uh, none of us really know. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we just turned the checkbox <laughs> yeah, on right. <laughs> when, 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 when we built the app. Anyway, I did a quick glance over what they're doing. And, I, and I'm, so this is not my endorsement yet. You get that next week. But the good news is I think I'm going to be able to give it next week because everything I saw and everything they said, though I literally just scanned this document, looks exactly right. So all the buzzwords were there, you know, uh, PKDF2 and, and, and hashing and separate initialization vectors and, and all the right things. So I will spend time with it this week, make sure that it – you know, and I've got a good guy now to ask questions of, and so I expect next week to be able to uh, give a a solid security-facing endorsement about CloudBerry, right. uh, which which does meet my other my other criteria. You buy it once, you're not renting it. You you buy it once, and then you um, with with nice terms and conditions. There there's a a a, 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 a trial period. Uh, it's it's twenty nine ninety five. Um, and it gives you access to a huge array of cloud-based services, not just Amazon's uh, S3 service. So um, I'm I'm very pleased by what I saw. So Good. I wanted to I wanted to close the loop for our listeners. Yeah. That 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 I am on, that I got your I saw your tweets and I'm on it. Good. I, I can't wait to find out about it. I'm always I'm always interested in more of these things. I want them ideally to be cross-platform. Uh, because I, I work in so many different operating systems, but I understand that's not necessarily typical, so usually I have to wait a little while. I'll tell you what, the one nightmare, though, is authentication, uh, and I, I use things like LastPass. They're a great, sophisticated Band-Aid over the problem of, of authentication, but I want to heal the wound. I want one ID. Uh, we, do we have an update? Do we have another contender here? Well, okay, so... Uh I be, I've been I've been aware of the service known as One ID for a while. I've I met its founder and he describes himself as a serial entrepreneur, uh, Steve Kirsch, who's who's well known up in Silicon Valley. Heard the name before, um, definitely. I met him at at, at, a, at a privacy conference uh, a year or two ago. Um, uh, you know, he's a, a born in L.A. Uh, actually, on Christmas Eve, he's one of those poor guys who, oh. <laughs> you know, whose birthday is the twenty fourth. So their birthday and Christmas were always, you know, stuck together. Save money never on got... presents for some people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and went to MIT. I remember his name first from a company he founded 
called Mouse Systems. And and Tom, you were probably still running around, you know, having birthdays with single digits at the time. Mouse uh, Systems, huh? Mouse yeah, I don't systems. remember that one. It was a very nice, the very first optical mouse. It was a... A, a, a square device with, um, I think it, it was a three-button mouse, and it needed, unlike current optical mice, it need, it had its own optically encoded mouse pad. I was, was 12, sort of, when, I'm looking it up, in 1982 when it came out. Okay. I was using my TI-99 for a... <laughs> anyway, it was... I, I, it was my favorite mouse. It's the mouse I used. It was state-of-the-art. It had a higher... Uh, resolution than other devices at the time. It it had a it had a um, sort of a a two tone grid that it used. But you know, anyway, he was the first, he, and he has a patent on that that technology, the first optical mouse. Mouse Systems were were the, were the people who did it. He was also behind FrameMaker with Frame Technology Corp, another successful company. Oh yeah, I use FrameMaker definitely. He was a founder of InfoSeek. Oh, I used InfoSeq too, yeah. Yep. And also two companies, Propel and Abaca. And so now he's on to the question of identity. Now, hope springs eternal. I mean, I, we, how many times? I mean, identity is a probably the number one big topic on this podcast because I recognize it's a problem we have to solve. The advantage that LastPass has is that it works now on everything. You know, it does so by running in the browser, leveraging JavaScript to, to, to cryptographically store and safely fill in the, the fields prompting you for data on websites. What, what Steve and his gang have done is they've decided to try to obsolete user logons and passwords. All right. Sounds like open ID so far. Well, um, what, what it, the, 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 the challenge is, and, you know, I, I would just blow it off if this wasn't Steve Kirsch mm-hmm. um, because he tends to succeed at these things. Um, I don't know if he can succeed at this, which is why all I can say is I'm hopeful because it requires that every site that you use it with modify itself for one ID. So this is not a solution that you can get and start using all over the Internet. Mm -hmm. Instead, it will be a matter of like Amazon being convinced to do this and then they, they will, you know, say we support one ID and Facebook, and, yeah. you know, MSNBC, and CNET, and CNN, and, and well, you know, then if, blah, they, if blah, Facebook blah, blah. would get on board, conceivably, that could take a bunch of sites who use Facebook as their, their login credential with it. Yeah. So that could be good. Well, yeah. So, um, so if you replace the, if you completely replace the existing authentication model such as it is which is really amounts to who are you and what's your password um if you just say well we're going to ignore all that and come up with a a, a better system well then frankly it's not hard 
to to fix this problem and they're offering a solution so um so uh, this comes up because i've been i've had a lot of people asking me about it and uh, the the technology looks solid they've got crypto guys they've got a cute little animated presentation that you know on youtube for it's got arrows pointing each direction and there's like nine of them and you know it bounces around between things and and i'm not even i mean it's like okay that sounds good i've asked them for formal crypto documentation and never received any i think there isn't any Mm. or they just haven't had to do it yet i'm i don't know how they could exist without that but apparently it doesn't exist or they don't want to share it with me i don't know um but it doesn't really matter because unless it, ac- it achieves critical mass, then it will be another proprietary attempt at doing this. And, and then there's the at, – at no point does it cost the user anything. And, and Steve's been a little cagey about that where it was like, well, in the beginning it doesn't until you start really using it a lot or something. It's like, okay, That's well – you know, so this isn't. This is their sort of like. Oh, don't worry about the man behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, it's like. So I'm hopeful. Uh, we'll sure. we'll keep our eye on it. We'll watch it. We'll see how it does. Um, if if it starts to gain traction, then that would be a good thing. The problem is, which it 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 is a re-centralization of authentication, and that's my only real objection. I mean, it. We have a problem, but but the idea is: Do we want some one company to own authentication for the internet? And we no. all know the answer is no. Yeah, of course not. We want a solution which is not a, pro- a proprietary service of one company. So that's a concern. Steve would like to own authentication for the entire internet. I suppose who anyone would, might. Who, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I understand that, but I, I, that to me. Yeah, it's like, okay, that's going to be a, a heavy lift. Yeah. But, you know, we'll see. You know, as soon as we're done with security now, uh, today, I have to rush right across the hall to Pixel Core and shoot the latest Sword and Laser, uh, which is my sci-fi and fantasy show I do with Veronica <laughs> Belmont. But, but I get a little taste of sci-fi right now. You got, you got some sci-fi stuff in the lineup today. Well, it was just, yeah, it was a, a tweet I got from Joe Kelly, who tweets as Sand PVRR from the great state of Maine, as he puts it. And he j- I just saw this come by, and I wanted to share it with our listeners. He said, uh, to, he said, at SGGRC, Audible has the Lost Fleet series in their 50% off sale. I got all six, he tweeted. And that's uh, started in six years ago in 2006, uh, was Dauntless, then uh, two novels the following year, Fearless and Courageous, then one, Valiant, in 08, Relentless in 09, and Victorious in 2010. And I have spoken of this series many times before. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and what was fun was that although it maybe got a little tedious, um, I maybe I think I'm I think I'm only rese- I'm only saying that after the fact because mm-hmm. I had to have more. The and this doesn't give away any, any anything of the plot to say that somebody who was in cryo sleep for a hundred years is brought back to consciousness and a little more slowly to full health, and 
it turns out that the war he was he participated in the beginning of is still raging a hundred years later, yet everyone has forgotten how to fight space battles where you have acceleration and inertia and speed of light delays because all the people who used to know how to do that got killed. And, you know, junior officers replaced them and they've ended up with this dumb strategy of just charging head on into your opponent and firing all phasers. Yeah. And so this guy comes along um, at an inflection point and 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 says and oh oh because he's a hundred years old he's got seniority even though he's been out of the game for a hundred years so uh, yeah he doesn't know what button to push on the console because that's all changed but what he understands he has class sort of classic com space combat training and and let me just tell you it none of this disappoints it is really good because he sets up situations and strategies and puzzles and solutions which all involve you know uh thinking ahead and dealing with the fact that we just can't beam ourselves from point a to point b we don't have you know science fiction technology we have actual you've got to start accelerating and slowly increase your speed now you're going fast and you can't stop instantly so you know what are you going to do so anyway really interesting stuff so I wanted to share the fact with, with that and thank Joey for sharing that with us. And for anyone who likes to listen rather than read visually, um, Audible has all six of these half off right yeah. now. Buy six for the price of three. Yeah. Essentially. Uh, that, that's, that's good stuff also because uh, Audible sponsoring Security Now today. Uh, and if you, if you haven't heard of Audible, if you want audiobooks, Audible is the place to go. Audible.com is the leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000, I should say more than, not over, 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. They have fiction like, uh, like the Lost Fleet series. They have nonfiction like Lawrence Lessig's Republic Lost. They have periodicals, Scientific American is available on Audible. And listeners of Security Now are getting a free audiobook if you want to try out the service. If you're like, you know, I'm interested in this Lost Fleet series, but I don't know how I'm going to like Audible books, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You can get the first of the Lost Fleet series. Try it out absolutely free. Uh, or any any book you want. Download that audiobook for free or any of your choice at audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Or if you're already an Audible user, give that to a friend. Uh, do them a favor. Let them get a free book as well. Uh, two credit books don't apply, but any single credit book you can get for free at audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, I'm actually reading 2312 by Kim Stanley Robinson on audiobook okay. right now. Yeah. See, we need a different word, Tom. You know, read. reading. Yeah. Read. Read yeah. means read. I you guess. Know, I, you're, I, li you're listening to that audio book. But I am, my brain is reading it. Yeah. I definitely see both sides of this argument. We've had it on Sword and Laser a bunch, too. And, <laughs> and to me, it's, it's easier just to say read. Than, yeah. Because in the end, if you know the story and you're discussing the story, nobody can tell. You're yeah. not with me on this one. I can see. No, I, yeah, I, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter. You can still, you can still listen to a book, and you're going to hey, enjoy it just as much. I don't know what my problem is. We have an audio podcast here. Everybody is listening to the <laughs> podcast, 
Now, if I had written it down first, then that, well, I guess that would be different. But, yeah, yeah. Well, they can audio, read the transcript. Audio is a valid format, no yeah. doubt about it. Absolutely. Uh, we still got a little bit of news to get to. Uh, I want to get to the Judd McAfee stuff, but we, we, do we have some IE10 news we need to talk about first? Well, um, I, this really bears on today's topic. Um, I, I encountered a couple days ago the fact that there was a pre-release preview of IE10. Um, I have installed it this morning because I wanted to get the the install experience, as I mentioned at the top of the show, to see what it was that Microsoft showed us about the Do Not Track header, which is the main focus of this podcast, once we catch up with all of this week's interesting news. And actually, we have gossip here in a minute. Um, but uh, so I did tweet the link it's a little hard to find actually i had in in um i should have just looked at my own twitter feed to get the link because i tweeted it a, a day or two ago so you can easily find it if you just go to twitter.com slash sggrc and it's the one of the top most recent tweets from me uh anyone who wants to play with ie10 i didn't when I it looks exactly like IE nine, I, I you know, I, but I am in Windows seven. I'm not in Windows eight, so I'm not having any you know <laughs> metro experience. No, right. Although the, the scroll bars went flat on me. They, Does they, it they, update both IE tens, the metro and the desktop version in Windows eight? I assume so. I well, I don't know because what I I'm still using t- uh, IE seven on this machine. Mm. So, um, and in fact, one of the links I I went to when I was looking for the IE ten pre-release preview was tried to upsell me to i to windows 8 and i was surprised i think it was like 29 dollars or 39 dollars or something it was like oh that's not that bad so um you know they're certainly trying to move people forward so i just wanted to let people know it ie 10 exists now in pre-release form for windows 7 yeah, I, I just asked a stupid question earlier, by the way, because Windows 8 ships with IE10. So ah, exactly. You would. Um, so the other bit of confusion, when I tweeted this, I got some tweet back saying, what? IE? Come on. No, it's like, hold on, listeners. We all know I'm using Firefox, and if, if Chrome ever gives me fabulous tabs like I have with Firefox, then I'll be probably switching to Chrome. Because Chrome's feature set is is moving along nicely, although I I did mention last week how Chrome is now offering per site settings for for like script management for 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 taming JavaScript, and we talked about how you can change the defaults to not run JavaScript unless I permit it for a particular site, and I did see a feedback. It was either a tweet or mailbag from someone saying, ah, but, Steve, I think it must have been a tweet because it was since then. He said, ah, but don't you wish it also had enable it for this session only? And it's like, oh, I do wish that because that's one of the things I love about NoScript over on Firefox. I use that all the time where I'm never going to come back to this site, but it's doing something annoying you know, it's broken without JavaScript. So let me turn on JavaScript just for now, but I don't want to clutter up my list of persistent permissions with endless uh, domain names of places I'm probably never going to come back to. So I use the yes 
enable it just this for this session all the time in Firefox. So, so anyway, I'm telling people about IE10 because it still has 54% of the market share. I mean, it's an important browser. It's what everyone who doesn't know better uses. Yeah, and so, everyone on a Microsoft Surface is using it too because yeah. they don't have any choice. That's the only thing they can use. Right. Uh, this uh, story of John McAfee down in Belize, I don't know whether to be entertained, amused, horrified, sad. Uh, he is, he's on the run. His neighbor was shot and killed. Uh, he fears that he's, uh, he's, a, he's going to be accused of the murder. The Belize police say, no, he's, he's just a person of interest. They want to bring him in for questioning. What, what do you make of this? Well, um, uh, I actually encountered John before the world knew him um it's a strange story um i was writing the tech talk column for infoworld magazine and we're now we're talking you know 25 years ago mm -hmm. and th this was a time before we knew that viruses existed that is there wasn't even the name had been coined virus Th there was what I remember was that on CompuServe, which there was like the source and CompuServe were the two major, you know, use your modem to dial in to a big BBS in the sky system. On CompuServe, which was the more sort of the much more techie of the two services, um, there was sort of, a, there were rumors of software that, you you might download and it would like do something to your computer which was at the time science fiction yeah no one you know it was like How wait a minute happen? yeah i mean it's like huh, what huh? and now the sysops as we called them on CompuServe, were adamant about this being untrue that absolutely that was the most ridiculous thing they had ever heard now they had a vested interest in it not being true because the last thing they wanted to imagine was that software they were encouraging people to download and that they were they were responsible for would hurt people so they were just the great deniers of this and i took some umbrage to that because i knew it was possible i mean i I'd never seen a virus. I didn't know that they existed. But as a developer myself of assembly language code, and at the time you pretty much needed to be down at that level to do these things, I knew I could create one if I had any incentive to, if I if I wanted to. It's like, I mean, I knew how, how a virus would work if it existed, but I didn't know that it did. So at this sort of this inflection point in the industry... I had my weekly column. I decided to, to write a series of three columns in InfoWorld about the anatomy of a computer virus. And I never said whether I had seen one or not. I just wrote sort of factually, this is how computer viruses work. And I did it as the column did at the time, and like very much like this podcast, with you know lots of detail, everything explained and filled in, 
and fleshed out so that a reader came away thinking, whoa, holy crap, you know, that's scary stuff. Yeah. And after the second of the series of three columns ran, the office got a phone call from someone I had never heard of. He was asking for me. They transferred it to me. This person said he identified himself as John McAfee. And I said, okay. And he said... Weird to think that name wouldn't mean anything at any point nothing. in time. No right? one had ever heard of him before. Yeah. Um, and I said, okay. And he said, Steve, um, I had no idea you were down there. And I'm thinking, what? What? Who is this? And, and he said, well, we've got to compare notes. This is fantastic. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, your columns, the, the last two columns you've written in InfoWorld about viruses. He says, based on what you've written, it's clear that, you know, you've been capturing these two and analyzing them. <laughs> and I said, and I said, uh, oh, <laughs> You're like what? Do it, huh? uh, and Thanks. he said, he said, you know, you, you got everything exactly right. So maybe we have some that you don't and you've got some that we haven't found. So, you know, let's collaborate and share and share our information. And I, and I, I said, oh, uh, uh, John, I've never seen a virus. And, and I could tell he didn't believe me. He, first of all, he didn't want to believe me. Now, were you but, calling them viruses by that point? Uh, do you, I do recall. I'm just curious. God, you know, good. That's a real. That's a very good point. And I don't know whether that term had been coined. Mal well, things that all came later. Malware was, yeah. you know, meant to be more of an umbrella. Len Edelman um, apparently coined the term in 1983. From from what I've read, I. He was yeah. uh, he was talking to Fred Cohen at University of Southern California. You know, I've got the columns. I'll 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 see if I can because uh, I you know th th that was early on in the first five years of, and I think that they would have been in the Passion for Technology book set that I did. Oh, I'd be I'd be interested to know that. But anyway, yeah, that's, I, uh, this that is, too. Side note. Anyway, so he I could tell. I mean, first of all, he was just crestfallen. I mean, he really sounded disappointed, and it, it, I and I think he thought. I wanted to keep them to myself. Like I don't think he believed that I could just make up something that was as accurate as apparently the columns were. I was delighted that I got it right. Yeah. You know, because I was just writing fiction, but I was based on uh, the the engineering of software. So it was software engineering driven fiction. How crazy. Uh, and so, yeah, so that was my introduction to John McAfee. And, of course, we all know him famously after that. Now, I do remember, and and I was thinking about this and Leo, because Leo being more my contemporary, he will probably, and with the memory that he has, which yeah. is amazing, there was some strange stuff about McAfee back then. And it's funny because I was, I was talking to some friends of mine about how, how you cannot do research that predates the internet because <laughs> this was pre-internet. And if this, if anything happened after the internet, then it would all be online. You could find it. But anyway, there was, he, McAfee was involved in some, I don't know what they were. I sort of remember 
Maybe it's having to do with HIV and AIDS and bulletin board systems, BBSs. Because as, like, as I was saying, that's, that was the technology at the time. There was no global network or even you know, local networks. It was all modems dialing into central, central points. But I'll bet you that Leo would remember this. And you know, there's no way to find out because... It was pre-internet, and it's sort of an interesting phenomenon of you know of our life that things that predate the internet, unless someone goes and like puts literature or old copies of magazines, you know. There's on there's the a lot more out there than you think. When I was researching chronology of tech history, you can find stuff pre-internet, but it's 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 on at one point more difficult, but also more reliable yeah. than what you find post-internet. Uh, and yeah. it's kind of kind of amazing some of the things that have disappeared from the internet post-internet that you so, know, websites just purge and get rid of pages but, yeah yeah so anyway a, a listener of ours and a, and a and a friend of mine uh an online friend of mine who both participates in grc's news groups and and tweets a lot simon zarafa i've mentioned on the podcast often because he sends interesting stuff uh, i got a kick out of what he said he said he uh, i guess he was quoting seeing it somewhere else but it, he tweeted if mcafee is truly innocent as he claims, he now feels our pain over false positives. Oh yeah, you cut it. <laughs> you, you knew, you knew that had to come. Uh, so yeah. Cyberdog in the chat room was making a joke about the, you know, the judge giving him a thirty-day trial. <laughs> okay, yeah, I guess there are going to be lots of that. Yeah. Anyway, there is a really interesting interview uh, from this morning of. John McAfee uh, speaking to um, a reporter with Wired magazine, Joshua Davis. Uh, apparently, John called Joshua at 4.30 our time, uh, 6.30 in Belize, where John is currently hiding from the Belize police. And apparently, John had 11 dogs uh, in his backyard or at his house, um, and that there had been a problem with his neighbor historically over the dogs barking and really, really upsetting his neighbor. And then I, I read something about five of the dogs being shot. Um, no one knows by whom, but the presumption yeah. would be the neighbor had finally, you know, gotten fed up. And what we do know is that. The neighbor of John McAfee was found dead with a nine millimeter Luger slug in the uh, in the back top of his head. Yeah, so face down in the pool, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so John is on the lam, as they say, and his position is that that the the justice system there is brutal, and he would be subjected to torture and interrogation and, you know, heinous treatment were he to get to allow himself to be apprehended. He, of course, he's claiming his innocence. We don't know anything one way or the other, or I, at least I don't. Um, if, you, if anyone's interested, uh, it's about a 28-minute audio um, uh, interview with, uh, and, and Joshua explains himself at the beginning. Uh, he knows John rather well. He's traveled to Belize over the many months and met with John in person. And so 
John trusted him and contacted him to sort of give him his side of the story. And they talk about all kinds of stuff. So if anyone's curious, it's sort of interesting. Yeah, and Wired's going to do a uh, magazine story in, in, in the print version of Wired in January all about John McAfee's history, and how he huh. ended up in Belize and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it'd be interesting reading. Uh, before, we finish, before we get to uh, our SpinRite testimonial, we have a PDK update. Is well, that the People's Democratic Republic of Korea? Well, or Portable Dog Killer. Oh, Portable. Actually, this bears on our previous story a little bit. It huh? strangely does. Uh, the dogs barking incessantly and driving the neighbor crazy. Um, uh, behind me on a tripod is, uh, you can see in the video, a device. I was wondering what that was. I was thinking it was, it was awfully boxy to be a camera. Yeah, it's not a camera. Uh, it is a, uh, a just-finished new implementation of a high-frequency canine <laughs> training device, for lack of a better term. Uh, I think I called the portable sound blaster in the Google group that I created by that name. Um, and you can see an antenna sticking up from it because it responds to a small remote control. Um, this one I built because my neighbor's or my, my best friend's problem with his neighbor's dog has returned. Um, the, the, when we were initially l looking at the idea of bringing this, the, the doggy trainer back to life last summer, the problem got resolved. Um, the, he, the neighbor was doing a better job of keeping control of, of the dog, not letting it out in the backyard or, or scolding it and bringing it in if it was barking. But I was over there a few weeks ago um, helping Mark with a, a media center, set, uh, setting up a, a Windows 7 media center-based uh, four-channel media recording system. And the dog was barking all afternoon. And I said, what is this about? And he says, oh, yeah, this is, this is back. The dog is back. And, and you know, they, they leave in the backyard and drive off and don't know that it's barking. And it just sits there yapping all day. And I said, okay, well, we got to deal with this. So I built one. Um, uh, I wanted to give our listeners a, head up, a heads up because there had been a great deal of interest in it before. Um, and I'll go into greater detail uh, once Leo is back, um, but I just kind of wanted to make a mention of it and give people uh, a heads up. I did tweet some photos. Uh, I tweeted links to some photos of this device um, on my Twitter feed in the last day or two. So again, if you just go to twitter.com/sggrc, you can find the links. And there's also a link to an update that I posted, which talks about this, why it's tripod mounted as opposed to handheld and uh, it's more of an installation oriented device than a than a gun um and many people have since said hey steve i was hoping it would be smaller uh i'm looking at doing a small one because i i learned a lot building this thing and i have some ideas for how one can be made very small yet uh still loud enough to get the job done and he likely. uses sound if anybody's wondering it doesn't yes it doesn't oh and no no yeah. dogs are hurt at all it just startles them yeah it's a, and, it's uh, a, train, it, a training device is a perfect way to uh, yes. to refer to it yes and um i do have a nice story another story 
of Spinrite's success with solid-state drives, which I'm pleased about. I'm, I'm really pleased that Spinrite is showing so much success uh, repairing solid-state drives. Uh, Tim Green sent a note on November 12th uh, with the subject of Spinrite heals stupidity. And he said, hi, Steve and team. After several years of using Spinrite for protective maintenance without incident, it's now my turn to send in a Spinrite save the day story. I just bought my girlfriend a new Lenovo laptop, and yesterday I spent the morning setting it up for her. I had purchased a 256-gig mSATA SSD drive so that the laptop would have both the SSD for speed plus the large spinning hard drive for lots of data storage. So I had to install the mSATA and clone the system from the hard drive to the mSATA. And... Just to take a break for a moment, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, mSATA is a is a cool little technology. It stands for micro or mini SATA, and it's part sort of part of the of the uh, PCIe spec. But it is a very small little card with an edge connector, and they come in two different sizes, uh, sort of like a half a half size and a full size. And many motherboards now have one or two of these mSATA um, connectors on them. And so they're, they're like over in the memory and processor area of the motherboard, sometimes even on the underside of the motherboard uh, where there, there, there's room underneath the, the, the standoffs against the case. Um, I have one motherboard, in fact, that has an mSATA uh, drive option on the underside of the motherboard just because it was otherwise unused uh, territory. So that's what, the, what what he's talking about here. It's, so it's a, he, this Lenovo laptop, in the same way that you might open up a little door to put memory in, you can open up a different little door and there's a little connector that you can stick a an SSD drive into, which is what he did. So he said, unfortunately, Crucial, which is the name of the memory supplier, forgot to pack the teeny tiny little screw that holds the mSATA drive in place by its top left corner. After searching through all my drawers, I found I didn't have one in the house. So I thought, eh, it's nicely seated in the slot. All I need is to tape it into place with the sticky tape from the two little antenna cables and position them so that the cover exerts a little pressure on the SSD drive to keep it in place. Not smart. In fact, very dumb. Because as it turns out, the screw in the corner provides the ground connection for the entire SSD. Everything seemed fine. But for the first, but the first time, my girlfriend moved the laptop while it was running, everything froze. Mm. The, the movement had been enough and probably the little bit of torquing of the case to interrupt the tenuous ground connection of my jury-rigged installation and on booting into the BIOS, the mSATA SSD drive was no longer visible at all. I realized immediately what had happened and if I could have, I would have kicked myself. I was afraid that the drive and everything on it might be completely hosed. Luckily, I'm also a Security Now listener every week from the very start. So I already knew that it's possible to repair SSDs 
with Spinrite running on level two. I found a screw, reseated, and firmly screwed the drive into place and managed to make it visible again in the BIOS. But, indeed, it was hosed. But, half an hour later, Spinrite had repaired everything on level two and the computer was as good as new again. So, as you see... Spinrite can even heal the results of gross stupidity. <laughs> Thanks for your great product and my ongoing security education. Tim Green, originally British, but located now in Cologne, Germany. All right. If and only it would work in every case of gross stupidity, but I guess that's asking too much. <laughs> that would be stupid not yeah. instead of spin right. <laughs> exactly. Work on that. Get, okay. Get, get that work. All right. Let's, I'm excited to talk about this. I, I've been very interested in the whole do not track project since it began, and it's sort of allegory to do not call. Uh, and I was stunned, as a lot of us were, when Microsoft made the decision to turn it on. By default, because yes. the whole deal with the advertising agency was, okay, well, as browser makers, we'll put it in, but we will require a user to turn it on so that your advertisements can still be set for most people. As uh, is the case with every other browser currently. Every browser has it now of at varying levels of visibility. Which I'm, but, I was surprised that that even happened alone. Yeah. Yes, but uh, but so what is Microsoft's reasoning here? How did how did how did this how did this policy come about? Okay, so what I want to do uh, this won't take much time, and feel free to interject or interrupt any time, Tom. If if something if this triggers a thought, I I you can stand in as a proxy for our listening audience. Okay, I'll try. Yeah, they're unable to to interrupt. I want to share a relatively short, by about ten minute, um, the keynote address which was given by the guy who understands exactly where Microsoft stands, which is who is Brad Smith, the general counsel for Microsoft, and their, uh, and their executive VP. Um, he, gave a, he gave the keynote presentation at the 34th International Conference of Data Protection and Privacy Commissioners, which was recently on October 23rd, uh, just a few weeks ago, held in Uruguay. So he says... Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. I've made many trips to Latin America before, but I suspect like most of you, I've never had the opportunity to experience a cyclone firsthand. Oh, man. To which he got some laughter. I guess they had some weather down there uh, a little bit later than we got Sandy here in the U.S. He says, I suspect that a year from now you may not remember a word that I utter this morning, but I guarantee you that every one of us in this room will remember the weather when we got up. It's been that kind of day. We come together to talk about an important topic, privacy. But despite the evident importance to us, to all of us, I think it makes sense to start by asking a question, does privacy still matter? It seems obvious to us that it matters, after all, we all came all the way to Uruguay to have this conversation about privacy. Clearly, it must matter. But as you may know, I work in an industry where one frequently encounters people who actually want to debate whether it matters. They want to talk about how it matters. They want to talk about why it matters. And they want to talk about whether the way it matters has, in fact, changed over time. They point out, for example... That if you look at big data, privacy must not matter as much as it used to. 
And by that, but he uses the term big data several times uh, in this uh, keynote. So as he's referring to, you know, huge archives of data collected uh, by organizations about their customers or clients or, you know, Internet users. He says, so they point out, for example, that if you look at big data, privacy must not matter as much as it used to. After all, look at all the information that people are sharing. Look at all the good ways in which it's being used. Or sometimes I meet people who say, look, privacy must not matter, at least not the way it used to. After all, look at Facebook. There are a billion people in the world who are sharing all kinds of personal information about themselves. How can Facebook be such a success if privacy still matters? Well, the first thing I have to say is this. Let's look at Facebook and look, let's look at the Facebook story. I'm not here to be an expert on Facebook's privacy policies, but I can speak as someone who was involved in the decision at Microsoft exactly five years ago today to invest a quarter of a billion dollars in Facebook. Microsoft invested $240 million in Facebook. Now, at the time, it was not necessarily obvious that Facebook would ever have a billion users. At the time, Facebook was not even the most popular social network on the planet. It wasn't the first. The first was probably a service called Friendster. It wasn't the second. The second was a social network that became very popular called MySpace. In fact, five years ago, MySpace had 100 million users. Facebook had only 24 million. In our industry, it is very unusual for one company to be the first to reach 100 million users and to have four times the market share of its, of, of its next closest competitor and then not go on to be the prevalent and most popular service by far. So, of course, he's, he's noting there that for whatever reason, MySpace has gone, has gone into decline, whereas Facebook, of course, now has many, many times the number of users it had at the time. And he has a slide in his presentation that shows sort of an exponential growth curve in green for Facebook and a, and a flat line dropping. Uh, Sagging flat line. Yeah. <laughs> Sagging, yes. And he says, but of course, the real question here is what happened? What happened over the last five years? Well, at a certain level, I think we all know what happened. MySpace didn't do so well. It has fewer users today than it had five years ago. Facebook has exploded. In five years, it has gone from 24 million users to a billion. We've done pretty well with our $240 million investment, he says. But I think the most important question for us is not what happened, but why. Why did these two curves take off the way they did in such different trajectories? There are a number of different reasons but there is one that personally I think probably matters the most. It's certainly one that we thought about when we put $240 million into the company. It's a facet that was captured very well by one of the leading books about what happened, David Kirk Kirkpatrick's book, when he addressed why this happened. And Kirkpatrick's book is titled The Facebook Effect. Anyway, he says, and what he said was on MySpace 
for people who remember it from five years ago, the default setting was that you could see anybody's MySpace profile. Or to put it another way, the default setting was anybody could see your profile as well. But on the Facebook, and initially it was called the Facebook, the default setting allowed you only to see profiles of others at your own school or those that, who, or those that had explicitly accepted you as a friend. A degree of privacy was built in at Facebook by default in a way that was simply not the case at MySpace. Really interesting to hear Facebook lauded for their privacy. Well, now, okay, let me me just pause for a minute here because I reacted when I read this the first time thinking, wait a minute, okay, Eh, I guess I can see that, but I know why I was forced to create a Facebook account and it's that no one without a Facebook account could see anything yep. inside. You know, it was the classic walled garden, as it's called, where you had to have an account in order to participate at all. You couldn't be a voyeur without one. And so I would argue that that a substantial amount of Facebook's growth was was built by the pressure of its early success and then sort of the desire to see what was going on, but you had to join in order to see anything at all. So is that where he's going with this, is to say those that, that that's behind the justification for Microsoft's default privacy? Well, um, um, sort of. He says, so in effect, at MySpace, you could change the settings, but by default, you shared your information with the world. And at Facebook, by default, you shared information only with people in your network and the people that you decided to make your friend. Now, I can see that, this is me speaking again, I can see the power of that. The, the, The notion that somebody who is posting personal stuff absolutely wants control and... You know, I've coined the term that I've used many times in the last eight years. I call it the the tyranny of the default, which is which is which is my way of stating the observation that the whatever the default settings are, most of the time that's what they end up being forever. Yep. That you know the tyranny of the default. Um, I have a I have a page on GRC. If you if you go to grc.com slash cookies slash cookies dot htm, my site has been for years looking at the cookie handling habits of everybody who visits. So as a consequence of that, I've I've been able to develop some statistics and and relative to the the issue of third party cookies that has been known far longer than this issue of you know a, a, a one eye uh, the the do not track uh, header, um, you can see there that I'm I'm I look at the number of users. For example, right now, eighty five point six percent of the fifty seven thousand five hundred twenty nine unique visitors 
to GRC just last week. That's not a running average. That's that's the total. I, I update it every Sunday night so that I'm always seeing, with no older history, a snapshot of what is current. So 85.6% of all of the many users who visited GRC last week had third-party cookies enabled. But if you scroll down to the bottom, I show... Apple's Safari visitors separately, mm. and only 30% of them have third-party cookies enabled. Why? Because Safari is unique in the industry of having third-party cookies turned off by default. And so this is perfect, a perfect example of the fact that the default matters. You know, that's the, the default is what people end up leaving their system set to. Anyway, so he, he uh, continuing, he says, um, it's not just the votes of consumers in their adoption of Facebook that tells us, in my opinion, that privacy matters to people, that privacy matters to consumers. Consider this. Recently, the Pew Research firm did some research in the United States, and what they found was that 56% of consumers had decided not to complete an online purchase because of concerns about sharing personal information with the seller that they were going to do business with. They also found that 30% of consumers had uninstalled an app from their smartphone because of concerns about the way the app dealt with their personal information. If you put these things together, I think they tell an important story. They tell us that people care about privacy. But that's not the whole story, because I think they also tell us that people are thinking about privacy in new ways. And if we're going to do our jobs well, whether we come to this meeting from industry or from an NGO or most importantly from a government and as a regulator, we need to really think about the new ways that people are thinking about privacy. He says, to start with, I would say in many ways, this is not a new phenomenon, um, it's funny, in his slide presentation, he shows an old-style bellows camera. Yeah, um, looks like a tin-type taken kind of machine. Exactly. And he says, the history of technology is a history of societal change. Typically, one sees a pattern. The pattern starts with the invention and then the increasing adoption of new technology. That is then followed by a second step in the process. That second step involves new consumer needs and new consumer views about what to do with respect to the technology. And then finally, there's a third step. The third step is about what all of this means for laws and for regulation and public policy. And indeed, the story is well documented. The truth is... As many of you are aware, I appreciate, the whole global discussion about privacy really began with this invention on the screen, the camera, in the 1800s. And interestingly, as the camera became more popular, it was found throughout society. We saw this pattern take place. By 1890, there was a famous law review article in the Harvard Law Review written by Professor Louis Brandeis, who would go on eventually to become a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And it was in this article that Professor Brandeis coined the famous phrase, the right to be left alone, a phrase that many people who work in the privacy field every day are familiar with. But interestingly, that phrase is at the end of a sentence that talks that starts by talking about technology. What Professor Brandeis recognized was that the camera had changed society. And because the camera had changed society, people could no longer walk out of their front door without the risk of being photographed. And of course, this was before there were lenses that could see someone a kilometer away. And he recognized that because of this invention, there was a new legal right that needed to emerge to protect people the way they had always been protected in the past before this technology had entered the scene. And we see, 122 years later, the leaders of our day in the United States and around the world grappling with similar phenomena. It was in the United it was in the United in the in the State of the Union address this year and in other reports at the start of the year the President Obama started to address these issues. I think he captured part of this issue for us very clearly because what he said is that we live in an era where people are sharing more information but that does not mean that privacy is an outmoded value. What we really need to focus on, in my opinion, is how to reconcile these two aspects. And indeed, we meet in the year 2012 when people around the world are doing just that. Personally, he says, I think that perhaps the single most important statement in the United States this year came in a case from one of our current Supreme Court justices, Sonia Sotomayor. The case involved Jones versus the United States and the question of whether the police needed a warrant to put a GPS tracker on a car. As many of you may know, there's a constitutional right to privacy under the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And that protection always turns on whether people have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a particular situation. So that's this notion of a reasonable expectation of privacy. But Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, had something very interesting to say. She said that for over a century, people in the United States had always looked at the Constitution and in fact said that there was a reasonable expectation of privacy only if there was a reasonable expectation that people could keep certain information secret. And in fact, I think, if you read much of what had been written about privacy over the last 50 years, in many, many instances, perhaps most, if you substitute the word secrecy for the word privacy, the meaning of a sentence or the meaning of a paragraph is unchanged. This is, you know, the sort of test attorney's use and, and learn. When people were talking about whether they could keep something private, they were, in fact, talking about whether they could keep something secret. Certainly in the United States, that has been at the core of our legal evolution. But I think the question that Justice Sonia Sotomayor posed, while focused on the Constitution, was, in fact, far broader than that. Is 
secrecy still a prerequisite for privacy? I think if you look at the world today, if you look at the story of Facebook, if you look at the story of people using the Internet, one thing is clear. People are less focused on secrecy. Consumers want to share more personal information than ever before. They don't care as much about keeping things secret. But that doesn't mean they don't care about keeping things private because there's a big but involved. The fact is people want to decide who they share information with. People of all generations want to make that decision themselves. And not only that, they also want to determine how their information will be used by the people with whom they choose to share it. That's the new model of privacy. Not a model focused on secrecy, but a model focused on what people are saying. They, in fact, want and need the ability to decide whom they share information with and how that information will be used. In other words, it's not a secret because I might tell a lot of people. It's not just in my house, but I want the right to keep it private so that I decide who I share that secret with. It's not a secret yes. anymore. Yeah. Yes, you want controls. It's not you binary. Want, you, yes, you, exactly. You want management. Um, it's very much like what websites do I trust to run scripting, right. to, run, to run JavaScript. I want to say most of those, you know, by default, sites cannot run scripting. If I, des- if I decide that, the, that I want to share that privilege of a site giving me script, meaning that I trust what it's going to do with that power, then I'd make that decision. I want control. And, you know, managing cookies is the same way. So he says, when you step back and think about this, I believe these are reasonable needs. They are laudable goals. And, and, and it's important to understand. I mean, this is a, you can kind of tell by the way he's pitched this. You know, these are the global leaders in, in, in policy setting, setting privacy policy at the nation state level. I mean, this is, this is the audience to whom he's, he's, He's bringing this, uh, and he specifically discusses DNT in a second, as we'll see. So he says, from every vantage point, our preeminent obligation should be to help people meet these needs in a world of new technology. Now, life would be simple if that were the only goal we had to meet. But as we know, it's not very simple at all. The reality is We need a balanced approach to address privacy. We need a balanced approach because more is at stake than solely the protection of privacy. As important as that goal and need, in fact, is, there are other goals that need to be addressed and balanced with it. For one, it is important to ensure that innovation flourishes. It's important to ensure that innovation flourishes because innovation does so much in the technology space to help people around the world. Certainly, in the technology sector, this is something we see every day. It's why many of us have chosen to spend our careers in technology. We see it today 
in the benefits of big data. We see it in ways that are profound. We see it in stories that people in the technology field bring to life every day. One recent example, in fact, involves the use of search terms in Bing. It turns out that when the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, like most authorities around the world, approves a drug, it focuses on that one drug in isolation. But it also turns out that millions of people every day in every country, in fact, use more than one prescription drug during the course of 24 hours. No drug authority can possibly test the combination of every drug with every other. Too many combinations. Oh, my God. Yeah. But last year, a researcher at Stanford started looking at the potential side effects that might happen if people took two drugs together. One was a drug that is an antidepressant. It's an antidepressant that is taken by millions of people in North America and tens of millions of people around the world. The second was a drug that reduces cholesterol levels. In fact, these are two of the most common drugs that doctors prescribe. But this researcher began to become concerned about the possible side effects of what might happen if people took both of these drugs together, side effects that no one had ever diagnosed. He began to review certain data that was in the possession of the Food and Drug Administration in the United States and then asked us at Microsoft if we could share with them in a de-identified manner certain search terms that had been entered in Bing and specifically what they wanted to search for is search terms where people were entering in the name of one or both of these drugs and some of the symptoms associated with diabetes, such as fatigue and headaches. And what they found is that when people searched for only one of those two drugs, it was unusual for them to include in their search request one of those other symptom words. But when they searched, but when they entered a search request that had both drugs named together, a full 25% of the time, they were also looking for information about how to deal with a headache or how to address fatigue or other symptoms associated with diabetes. And this helped the Stanford researchers along the path to a conclusion that if you take these two drugs together, you do face a potential side effect of diabetes. There are a million Americans in our country alone that happen to take both of these drugs. And for them, this kind of insight, when shared with doctors and applied with their patients, is something that can save lives. In fact, it's something that can save many lives. And it's made possible in part because of the insights that come from our use of big data and information. It's not just innovation and big data, though, that's at stake. There are other things as well. We find every day the use of information is of fundamental importance in our ability to make technology stronger. And I've, this is taking longer than I expected, so I'm going to skip down okay. to, to where he... Yeah, let's get to the DNT part. 
Exactly, where he begins to look at this. Um, um, <laughs> okay, so he says... Um, let me back up a little bit to get some context. Um, okay, he says... Um, even though I represent a technology company, I believe in the importance of privacy regulation. I believe we need clear and fair rules of the road. We need rules of the road that increasingly apply consistently in country after country and continent after continent. We need clarity so that everybody knows what they need to do. And companies that act responsibly are not going to find themselves suffering at the hands of companies who do not. And regulation creates that floor that provides that level playing field. But we don't need regulation alone. We also need self-regulation. And I'll talk about this after we're done because there is some, the FTC has, as I have been predicting, begun rattling their saber a little mm -hmm. bit about this. So he says, we need self-regulation, especially in the form of industry standards. We need self-regulation that can move technology forward. And we need self-regulation that can move faster and more globally than regulation alone is able to. But even these two things together, in my opinion, are not sufficient. At a time when everyone is talking about standards, it is important, I believe, to remember that we need market-based innovation as well. With market-based innovation, there's an opportunity for companies to experiment, to try new things, to see what consumers want. And if consumers do, in fact, want what companies are offering, there's an opportunity for those companies to grow. Market-based innovation is every bit as important, in my opinion, as these two other ingredients as well. All of this makes for a sometimes complicated conversation and it certainly in my role at microsoft is one of the things that i've come to conclude that we need to come together on we need to come together to work through the complicated conversations we must have and there's probably no topic now remember who this guy is i mean this is you know god of of you know he's the executive vp and general counsel there's probably no topic that I've been involved in that has and involved more complicated conversations over the last couple of years than three little letters that I've come to know by heart, D-N-T. And so I'd like to conclude by offering a few thoughts on D-N-T or do not track. As a company... We have taken a stand, if you will, when we decided earlier this year to turn on the do not track signal in the new version of our browser and the new version of our operating system that starts to ship this Friday. We've had to think a lot about DNT. Whenever you have to think a lot about a topic, I think it helps first to define the questions. And if you're in a business, there is always one question that you had better think about very long and hard. It's this. What do our customers want? Well, 
As a company, we, of course, have many customers. There are times when PC manufacturers are our customers. There are times when advertisers are our customers. And we value those relationships with these companies as our customers. I think a lot of people in our audience forget that the end user isn't always considered the customer. That's a good point. Right. He says, but at the end of the day, one thing remains very clear. Our customers, more than any other group, are the one billion consumers around the world who pay us money to provide them with cutting-edge technology. That, you know, that 29 or $39 I was, you know, hit up for when I was looking for IE10 and it wanted to give me instead Windows 8, Windows 8 upgrade, for example. Right. He says, what we need to focus on is this. What do consumers want around the world? So, after the DNT issue became a little more dramatic earlier this year, we thought it made sense to go back and see if we could learn a bit more about what customers want. We commissioned some research, and we asked people what they thought about these issues. And what we found in four countries where the research was conducted, the United States, the UK, France, and Germany, is that most people today believe that online tracking goes too far. And they want an easier way to block it. In fact, in all four of these countries, roughly 80% of consumers came down strongly on the side of wanting new steps to block the tracking of their personal information. We also talked to people about DNT itself. And we asked them the question that we were asking ourselves should this feature be enabled or not when they get a new browser or operating system? And what we found in all four of these countries was that 75% or more of the public, in fact, want this feature to be turned on. They want their privacy to be protected. They want it enabled. They want it on by default. The votes are in. Because these are the people whose needs we have to serve. Now, of course, again, we recognize that this cannot be only about one thing. We need to balance the protection of privacy with the other interests that I spoke about before. And so we've tried to give a lot of thought about where we go. And we've decided on two things. First, we want to innovate. We want to innovate and deliver new privacy benefits to consumers. We want to build on regulation and self-regulation. And we want to use our research and engineering capability to build better privacy protection into our products. That's why we believe we made the right decision when we made the decision to enable the DNT signal in the new versions of our products. But we also recognize that we need to do more than that. If we're going to move DNT forward, let's face it, we all have a pretty steep ladder to climb. And that's not going to take, I'm sorry, and that's going to take, in our view, four things. Not one, to get where we all want to go. First, we need a final and effective DNT standard 
that is adopted by the W3C. And I'll just mention, we don't have that. That is, this, the, that the DNT standard has not been agreed upon yet. So it doesn't exist. Um, and in fact, at the beginning of this year, the working standard did not specify whether a user agent, browser or operating system, should or should not have DNT enabled by default. That was added, I think it was in April. It was later in, in the year. So that's a data point. But even so, this hasn't been ratified yet. Continuing, he says, we need a standard that provides real privacy protection to consumers. And we need a standard that recognizes the legitimate and reasonable needs of all participants in the ecosystem. Second, we believe that the world of privacy will be a better place if we all recognize that browser vendors should have the ability to turn the DNT signal on or off when they ship a product. Okay, so here he's arguing against the notion that this standard should specify that DNT should either be on or off. He's, he's, he's suggesting this ought to be something that can be used for market differentiation. And the advertisers have argued the opposite. They've said, no, the only way we'll agree to abide by this and play by these rules is if it's off by default. Well, and that's the, yes, exactly. And that's the wink, wink, is because they know of the tyranny of the default, they know, I mean, you can't find it in Chrome. I I mean, it is buried. It's hidden under advanced settings and settings. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, and it's off by default. So, yes, you're, you're exactly right, Tom. So he says, if you look at standards around the world, they specify the technology, but they don't tell companies whether they have to turn it on or keep it off. That's a decision that is left to companies in the marketplace based on their assessment of the needs of their customers. And we believe that the right approach is an approach that allows vendors like Microsoft and everyone else to make this decision for themselves. But even that's not the end of the story. Third, we believe that browser vendors should clearly communicate to consumers whether the DNT signal is turned on or off and make it easy for them to change the setting. We recognize that you cannot have privacy without transparency, And we recognize that we have an obligation to ensure that it is clear to consumers how our product is configured. And I'll just say that nobody does that yet. And there is room for an ongoing conversation across the industry and more broadly about the best ways for vendors to communicate this information to consumers and the best ways to enable them to change this setting as they use the product themselves. And there's a fourth and final piece as well, a piece that has gotten too little attention in our view. There needs to be an easy and effective way for responsible advertisers and advertising networks to inform consumers to obtain persistent consent for their services, even if the DNT signal is turned on. Just because the signal is turned on does not mean that a consumer wants no services that involve tracking. 
What it means is that consumers need to be empowered to make their own choices. And advertisers and ad networks need to be able to inform consumers in a well-understood and broadly established manner so that those ad networks that are acting responsibly can inform people and get a user's consent, even while a consumer might choose to withhold that consent from another service. It's like NoScript, right? I don't want to run NoScript and say, NoScript can ever run ever. That's my only choice. I want to be able right. to say, okay, I want to make an exception in that case because I trust that site. Right. And one could imagine that a site, you, you might say that you had DNT turned on. You might go to a site that receives the DNT signal, and but but they generate revenue by by encouraging or at least allowing tracking. So they might say, hey, um, sorry for the inconvenience, but you've got DNT turned on. Um, we need you to disable it in order to use the site because we'll generate revenue from the ads and the advertisers have said, we need to track you. And that's perfectly now, legitimate. And you as a consumer get to choose whether that's worth the transaction or not. Exactly. Exactly. And it creates a, a lot of transparency. And that's what he's been talking about. When, when we've talked about things like uh, Ghostry that, that like shows you this list of all the tracking that's going on on a site is like, whoo, I mean, that was a real eye opener for many people. So he says, he concludes saying, but fundamentally, what the DNT signal does is empower people. It empowers people so that they're able to make that decision themselves. When you put all of this together, whether you're talking about DNT in the narrow sense or privacy more broadly, we're reaching an important moment. We're reaching the kind of time when we can look back and say, yes, technology has changed. It's continuing to change as we meet today. But because technology has changed, we can now say the needs of consumers have changed as well. The views of consumers have changed as well. The views of voters and the public at large have changed as well. We need to come together. We need to grapple with those changes. We need to ensure that innovation flourishes, that the ecosystem is healthy, that technology protection is addressed. But more than anything else, we need to address the privacy needs of people around the world. We need to address the privacy needs of people and move privacy forward. That is the opportunity we have in the years ahead. And he says, thank you very much. Now, I hate to say it, Steve, but we're, we're almost out of time here. So how, how best should we, we wrap this up? I know we've covered a lot of the points uh, we, yeah, as we've yeah, gone along here. Yeah, we have. Um, I wanted to mention uh, that the, that, um, the European Commission, the EU, uh, sent a letter from their location in Brussels to the World Wide Web Consortium, that's the W3C, uh, Tracking Protection Working Group. That's the DNT group. And uh, it's a short letter. I'll just, I highlighted two paragraphs that I wanted to, to share. And that, and that is they say, it is not the commission's understanding that user agents' factory or default setting necessarily determine or distort owner choice. 
The specification need not, therefore, seek to determine the factory setting and should not do so because to intervene on this point could distort the market. Crucially, and as a different matter, the standard should foresee that at the install or first use of the browser, the owner should be informed of the importance of their DNT choice, told of the default setting, and prompted or allowed to change that setting. So, so this is this. I mean, the EU matters on the global on the global scene, um, and their formal position uh, is essentially what IE10 represents. When I installed IE10, I received the very first item in the upper left said new privacy setting and then in blue and it said websites you visit receive a do not track request when you use Internet Explorer 10 to learn more about this setting, including how to turn it off. See more info about do not track, which you can click and it it takes you to more information and that that the location of that setting is where they have that grab bag. I'm sure IE users or X users will remember on, on the standard Internet settings dialogue that the last tab is advanced. And it's this huge potpourri mm. grab bag of checkboxes, a list that scrolls. And down under security, um, it says simply always send do not track header. And it is checked by default unless you, you choose to turn it off. So isn't the solution to this to say with any browser the first time you run it or install it it just asks you do you want to have it on or off in other words forced opt forced opt it's you're not opted in you're not opted out it just it lets you set it from the beginning I think that's perfect I th- I I think that's perfect and the problem is the advertisers know that people I mean by if we if we take Microsoft survey stats at face value, 80% of people will say, no, I don't want to be tracked. Thank you for asking. No. And, and that upsets the advertisers. Now, the FTC, uh, uh, you know, the, the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S., uh, the uh, chairman, John Leibowitz, is on record saying, if by the end of the year, that is this year, 2012, and we're approaching that. If by the end of the year or early next year, we have not seen a real do not track option for consumers, I suspect the commission, meaning the FTC, will go back and think about whether we want to endorse legislation. Leibowitz also attacked as delusional the owners of third-party advertising networks who claim that Opt-out functionality could damage their businesses as well as thousands of small businesses who rely on targeted web ads, noting that the same companies continue to operate in Europe where data collection rules are much stricter. He says, quote, the notion that they can say the sky is going to fall if you allow a modest opt-out is just not credible. So that's where we are. All right. Um, Yeah, so... IE10 has happened, and it uh, looks like you know Microsoft is planting a stake in the ground. I, I bet you 
that Yahoo and Apache are going to lose this one. Yeah, I think- I, it looks like Microsoft's trying to force the debate into an entirely new direction by taking this unpopular stand with the advertisers, saying, "Look, we don't want we don't want this either. We actually don't want Do Not Track on by default. We want an entirely different way of doing things." Well, and Microsoft also, there. I mean, this is a bet. This is a, they're 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 waging a bet here. Because they also, what we heard sort of reading, reading between the lines is they see it as a market advantage for their browser over those other browsers that do have DNT off by default. They believe that, that their promotion of the fact that Do Not Track is on will, over time, yeah. give IE the reputation that you are less tracked if you use IE, then if you use any other browser, which as, as will be true to the degree that the do not track header is honored by, by advertisers who, who track. Well, I'm sorry we don't have more time to talk about this, but I'm glad I'll have more time to talk with you next week, Steve. We'll do it. And I imagine uh, that we'll have lots of feedback on the topic. Love to hear from our listeners on this topic. Uh, just go to grc.com slash feedback between now and next week i'll uh, go through the mailbag and pull a bunch of stuff interesting i'm sure about this topic and no doubt others i know there are Uh, folks in the chat room wanting to hear more about apache so great place to ask your questions about that ah good yes because i do have information about where that stands and i got i got a kick out of remembering that the way that web server was named was that it had become so full of patches? It, it was it was a patchy web server. That's funny. I didn't realize. I don't think I ever knew that. That's that's yep. really great. Yep. All right. That's uh, it for this episode of Security Now. Don't forget to visit grc.com uh, to find out all of the great stuff that Steve's always working on, including Spinrite, including Shields Up, uh, and tons of other projects going on over there. And you can find our episodes at twit.tv/sn. And uh, live on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time, right after Tech News to Get. Thanks again, Steve. Thanks very much, Tom. Talk to you next week. Bye now. Security now.